Who is Ron Wolfson? Did you know that he was there welcoming you all when you came in the room? Yes. Okay, good. Ron is a CSP favorite. You're like it's a, you know, it's like uh, what Johnny Carson had guest host that came back. This is your, I think this is, I counted, this is your third luncheon with us. So you must have had three books because you only come down when you have a book for some reason. But it's his third CSP luncheon event. And, and he, as I mentioned, he uh, starred as one of our um, adult retreat speakers. Well, to get selected for adult retreat speaker, you have to be very, very good. Very good. Um, so Ron is, and I'm reading from a bio, and I, I hopefully it's still up to date. Are you still the Finger Hut professor? Yes. Okay. So Ron is, the, is a Finger Hut, or the Finger Hut? The Finger Hut professor of education in the Graduate Center for Education um, on the AJU faculty. Um, during his 35-plus year career at AJU, he has served as director of education of the education department, founding director of the Wizen Center for Jewish Future, director of Ramah Academy, dean of Finger Hut School of Education, and special assistant to the president, is that the president or the president of HAU? <laughs> and vice president of the university. He is a frequent scholar in residence for synagogues. I think many of you may have even had him as your um, special um, scholar in residence. He's co-founder and co-president of Synagogue 3000, an institute whose mission is to catalyze excellence in synagogue life. I would like to welcome you here to the dais and take over from me. Thank you very much, Thank Ron. You. It's the Ari. It's the Ari. It's the Ari cat. I love this man. This, I'm, I'm serious. I mean, in all of North America, I don't think there's one other person who has galvanized a community for Jewish learning like Ari Katz. So give it up for Ari. He's fantastic. And I have other friends, my dear friend and rabbi, Ellie Spitz is in the audience. I love you. Scott Siegel's here. He's a big groupie of mine. Give him a hand. And Mel and Marianne Malkoff. Do you know them? Oh, my God. Look how skinny they got. How did that happen? Unbelievable. And Sarah Benor from uh, uh, Skillset, NPO. Give her a nice hand. Wait a minute. I know how it happened. I know how Mel and Marianne lost a lot of weight. How much have you lost already? 35 pounds. 35. Marianne, I'm not going to ask you how much you lost, but I would walk right by you because she's so thin and so gorgeous. Wonderful. And I lost 100 pounds in 1993. How do I look? Don't push. So as soon as I tell people I've lost 100 pounds since 1993, I've kept it off all those years, they want to know how I've lost it and kept it off. So I'm here to tell you, CSP, here it is. Are you ready? Because yeah. that's all anybody wants to know. They don't want to hear about relational Judaism. <laughs> all they want to know is, how did I lose 100 pounds? I gave up all Jewish foods. <laughs> I call them K rations. <laughs> Give me a Jewish food that starts with the letter K. <laughs> kasha and Kanish, Kasha. Kasha comes with a little bow tie pasta called varnishkas. Kasha and varnishkas. And the kasha is like a semolina wheat or something like that. A smelt. I don't say it smells like something we don't talk about at lunch. It's terrible smelling. Give me another K. Knedlach. Those are. Uh, Knedel won the National Jewish Spelling Bee, not Jewish, the National Script Spelling Bee this year. Remember? Knedel. I think they. Knedlach are matzah balls. Come on. Kreplach are Jewish ravioli. Come on. Kugel is Jewish noodle pudding. Kishka, oh, Kishka, wait a minute. 
Kishke is a long brown sausage-like thing that in New York delis is called stuffed derma. Derma is skin. So it was a, literally, it was a skin of an animal that they, you know, and like an intestine. It's the neck. I don't think it's the neck. Is it? Was it the neck? That's the gorgle. So the, anyway, but they stuffed this skin full of uh, stuffing, and it's this long brown thing. Wait, you got to hear this. Uh, we never had a pet until Hanukkah one year. My parents bought us a dog. It was a dachshund, and I named it Kishke. Okay, one more. Anybody else? Kanish is a Jewish hot pocket. One more. Kamish bread, that's good. I was in Miami and somebody said to me, cake, that's a Jewish food. <laughs> Starts with the letter K. The only one I didn't give up is gribbonus. Do you know what gribbonus is? Okay, quickly. Gribbonus, for those of you who don't know, like my bubby, my grandma, she made gribbonus. So gribbonus, she kept a kosher home. So she had to have a fat for her fleshic meat meals. So she had to have um, some fat. So what she would do is she'd slice up chicken skins and she would render the fat. In Yiddish, this fat is called schmaltz. Just say it, it sticks to the top, top of your throat. Say it with me, schmaltz. Oh. And then what's left are the chicken skins. She'd fry them up with onions. And this is like so delicious. She'd have them in a colander on her kitchen table we did it like popcorn. What it did to my cholesterol, I don't want to know. But it was so delicious, gribbonous. So since I lost 100 pounds, people think I look like a Hollywood celebrity. I don't see it, but every, I'm telling you, I was on a plane from St. Louis, go Red Sox, they did it, they did it. But I was in St. Louis on Monday night for a lecture at seven o'clock in the fifth game of the World Series in St. Louis with Boston, started at 7.15. So they moved me to 5.30. <laughs> And I, I said to them, I'm the pregame show. <laughs> and you know what? 85 people showed up, which was thrilling for me. Anyway, um, I was on American Airlines in first class because I get up, I travel a lot, I get upgraded sometimes, and somebody asked me for an autograph. Do you see a Hollywood celebrity comedian in this punim, in this space? Robin Williams. Okay, what? A little bit, yeah? Robin Williams has the funniest line, the funniest line, the funniest comment, improvisational comment in movie history. Did you all see Mrs. Doubtfire, his famous movie? He wants to be near his uh, children because he's divorced from his wife, so he wants to, he, he's gonna be his, the nanny to the children and he ends up being an English nanny, right? But he tries on different disguises as a woman and the first one is an old Jewish booby an old Jewish lady, and he puts on a, a shaitel, a, a scarf, and he's all hunched over. And Susie and I, my wife, saw this uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, our hometown, in a movie theater that was packed. And when Robin Williams said this line in Mrs. Doubtfire, Susie and I are on the floor laughing. Nobody else is laughing. Because <laughs> if you don't believe me, it's not my line, it's Robin Williams' line. Check out on Netflix, Mrs. Doubtfire, and he says, as this old Jewish lady in Mrs. Doubtfire, the following line. Never buy gribbonus from a moil. Uh, 
says, he says, he's all just like, and then he says, they're so chewy. <laughs> That's terrible. That is the exact quote. You check it out. It's the exact quote. So anyway, I got a new story for you. Um, uh, uh, so my grandson was born in January. Say Mazel Tov. Oh, I'm so excited. Uh, they hail from Orange County, my son-in-law, uh, Dave Hall, and I uh, married my daughter, Javi, and they live in San Jose because daddy works for a small internet company called Google. <laughs> and uh, so they had the bris up there, speaking of a bris, and it was exciting, it was so exciting. And our daughter, Javi, has gotten the creative gene from uh, my wife, Susie. My wife, Susie, as I told some of you on that weekend, is the Martha Stewart of Jewish living before Martha went to jail. So um, uh, anyway, Javi's got this creative gene. So we had this bris in their apartment clubhouse, uh, this, this ritual circumcision. Uh, and uh, I'm honored as the grandfather, as the sandak, I got to hold the baby during this ceremony. And it was wonderful. Uh, so I sat on the Kose Eliyahu, Elijah's chair, and uh, I held the baby, this eight-day-old eight baby, on my lap. And uh, the Moyle did his thing, the circumciser did his thing. It took about two minutes for him to do his thing. But Javi is very creative, so she created this wonderful ceremony uh, with readings and the meanings of the names they gave. This, our grandson, Gabriel Elijah, is his name. And it was lovely. It was just lovely. But it took 45 minutes. And I'm holding the baby. 45 minutes I'm holding this child. And I always say, so, and it was wonderful. So finally it's over. And you know we had about 50, 60 people. And as soon as it was over, everybody started clapping, of course, and wishing Mazel Tov and singing. Simon Tov and Mazel Tov and Mazel I don't know what came over me, but I'm still sitting on the Elijah's chair. I'm holding the baby. I, I'm, of course I'm crying, but I, it, it was so moving. I stood up and I held the baby high over my head. And I said, Hakuna Matata. <laughs> Do you know the Lion King? <laughs> it's new princess born. <laughs> Unbelievable. I don't know, I'm a crazy person. So one thing, you know, I, I also joked when I was with you last about uh, my Hebrew school experiences, and they called me Vildechaya in Hebrew school. And anybody know Yiddish? Vildechaya, wild animal. But one thing kept me involved in Jewish life, honestly, Scott, it was this. Um, uh, my mother sang in the volunteer choir at our synagogue, Bethel Synagogue, for 25 years, every Friday night. And one year she convinced the cantor, Aaron I. Edgar, Allah shalom, may he rest in peace, to have a junior choir uh, for us kids. So I'm about nine years old, and it was very exciting. I got into the junior choir, and once a month we got trotted out onto the pulpit, the bima of our synagogue, to sing the one of two songs we learned in the four years I was in junior <laughs> choir. So if you look at your handout, it's on your handout, and it goes like this. Hine matovumanaim, shevetachim gamyakan. Hine matovumanaim, shevetachim gamyakan. A little louder. Hine matov, shevetachim gamyakan. 
הנה מטו שבת אחים גם יחד. Okay, that's enough. We don't have enough time. Okay, let's, let's, look at the, let's look at the words and do a little text study. It comes from the Psalms. Hine means what? Here. Here, or I like, hey, hey, I'm here, hey. Okay, ma means what? What, exactly. As I often point out, ma is a Hebrew word that's often mistranslated in your Passover Haggadah. Is translated as, why is this? That's incorrect. Ma means what or how. In the Haggadah, it really should be how different this night is. Then comes the questions. Got it? Okay. Tov. Tov. What does it mean? Good. A Hebrew word I never heard once in Hebrew school, not once. Tov. So how good? Tov. Uma. And how? Naim, how, how really pleasant, how lovely, how pleasing. So achim is the word literally for brothers, but let's be inclusive and say brothers and sisters, all of us together, all of us, right? Shevet uh, is the word for sitting or dwelling or being. Okay, Shevet Achim Gam Yachad. So skip the word Gam. The word Yachad means together. So really, how good is it and how pleasing is it for all of us to be together? But the word Gam means what? Also. Well, wait a minute. Why does it say also? It's really superfluous, that word. You really don't need that word. Gam is an extraneous, superfluous word, and nothing is superfluous in Jewish life, and certainly in biblical text, so it must have some meaning, and I'll share with you a meaning at the end of the talk. Okay? Cool. So uh, we've learned something together. So since the Pew study came out, I said this at the United Synagogue Convention that Ari Katz so brilliantly orchestrated. It was, he, Ari Katz is single-handedly with his colleagues, I know, uh, Rabbi Wernick and Rabbi Savinar, uh, has infused energy into the conservative movement. I mean, by his vision and his marketing genius and everything you know about him. So kolak kavod, Ari, give him a hand. I mean, 1,200 people came to the conservative movement conference. That's the first time in decades that's happened. Fantastic. So I was there and I said uh, to the group, uh, since the Pew study, of the portrait of American Jews had just come out. And I said, since last Tuesday, all anybody wants to do is talk about the Pew study. I don't. And I'm not gonna today either. Because um, there's a lot of hand-wringing about the Pew study. You know, that the Jewish community is disappearing and uh, every, all these people are choosing to be Jewish without religion. And that's true to an extent. But uh, I don't think Jewish, people are gonna go away anytime soon. Uh, my friend Larry Hoffman, my partner in Synagogue 2000, liked to say back in the old days that Look Magazine, anybody remember Look Magazine? That Look Magazine had a big cover story one year about the vanishing American Jew. It was back in the oh, 60s yeah. or 70s. And he often quips, well, it's now 2013. Guess what vanished? Look Magazine. 
So we're not going to disappear anytime soon, but, 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 uh, we, we are in our institutional lives in some danger, in our synagogues, in our JCCs, in our federations, because a lot of people are voting with their feet. A lot of people are saying, you know what, it's fine with me, 70%, we'll go to a Passover Seder somewhere. And uh, a lot of people say they're proud to be Jewish, which to me is an opportunity, not just a challenge. Um, but a lot of people are not affiliating with our congregations and our JCCs and are giving a gift to Federation. And this is a challenge. This is a pretty big challenge. And I think the only way we can meet the challenge is to be honest with each other about the nature of the challenge. Uh, and I think the challenge comes from a variety of things. Um, so uh, if we're gonna stop talking and start doing, we gotta change up how we engage people. Uh, we gotta change up our, uh, our paradigm of engaging people in Jewish life. Uh, our paradigm was, in the 20th century, let's build big buildings Let's have wonderful programs. Let's get a lot of people to show up and then they'll get engaged in Jewish life. It's not working the same way anymore. It works for some people, but it's not working the same way. A lot of people come to a great program and then they enjoy it and then they go home and so what? I mean, in my book, this book, Relational Judaism, I quote a rabbi who says, tells me this story. He says, a woman in my congregation, for 20 years, she's in our congregation. She comes to everything and then suddenly resigns. So I called to ask her why. I said, you come to everything. She said, I came to everything and I met nobody. There's something wrong with that. And let's have another honest conversation. Why would I spend thousands of dollars to affiliate with a Jewish organization if I can get any Jewish information I want with a click of a mouse, when I can uh, have plenty of friends on Facebook, when I can get my kid bar bat mitzvah training online, when I can rent a rabbi who needs a job to do the bar mitzvah ceremony in my backyard. And people are doing that. Uh, who needs a synagogue when a loved one dies in Los Angeles when I can hire Shiva sisters these are two very bright women who saw that synagogues can't marshal the volunteer force that they used to in providing a meal of condolence uh, uh, after someone dies. So they've gone into business. And you could hire Shiva sisters, they'll find you a rabbi, they'll arrange the, the funeral, they'll, they'll get you the condolence meal, and they'll provide valet parking because it's LA. <laughs> I mean, something's wrong. Uh, something's wrong, something's happening. And uh, there's another challenge. Uh, how about a JCC, for example? I mean, I was just in LA, in St. Louis, talking to a JCC, huge, gorgeous JCC, like the one here. But why would I join a JCC when I can go to 20... LA, LA Fitness. <laughs> I just wanted to see if you were listening, Ari. I, can, I just wanted to see if you were listening. I could go to LA Fitness 
Uh, and many locations are open, you, you know, 24-7. Um, why would I join the JCC Health Club? Um, here's another challenge. How many of you got married before the age of 30? Those of you that got married. Look at the hands. My kids did. My, my daughter got married. She was 32. My son's 35, not married. Living in Portland. Anybody got a nice Jewish girl? In? All right, come on, see me. Um, so, you know, that's a problem for a Jewish institutional life because the most important motivator for people to join a synagogue, for example, according to Stephen M. Cohn, the great sociologist, is he likes to say, the best predictor of synagogue affiliation is when a couple gives birth to a seven-year-old Jewish child. <laughs> so those of us who are interested in synagogue life, for example, we can sit and wait. We can hope they'll show up in their 40s with that seven-year-old Jewish child, or if we have a preschool, a three-year-old or a two-year-old, we can wait and hope they come. But I'm a little nervous about it because there's so many other options today. Um, and then we have a, a, the flip problem in many of our synagogues, again. Uh, people join, they get active, they're involved, until their youngest kid is bar and bat mitzvah. And then all of a sudden, boom, they're, they either drop their membership or they're, they don't show up anymore. They're kind of on the periphery. Even presidents of synagogues sometimes kind of disappear. So what does that tell you? That tells you that what we have in many cases with our people who do join our institutions is a transactional relationship a transactional relationship. You give me dues, membership dues, and I'll give you a bunch of programs, a rabbi on call, uh, uh, high holiday seats, bar bat mitzvah for your kids, and then when you're done with the transaction, like sometimes at the health club, if I, if I suddenly I don't wanna work out anymore, I drop my membership in LA Fitness. Ari doesn't like it, but it happens. We can't sustain the Jewish community on a transactional basis. And we can't sustain the community on a programmatic basis. We need a new paradigm. We need a new way of thinking about how we engage our people. There's nothing wrong with programs. This is a great program. You get so much out of this. But uh, you do. It's great. Our synagogues have fabulous calendars of programs. They're wonderful, but there's something missing. And the something missing is this, a new way forward, an, a new understanding. In education, we call it an enduring understanding. And that enduring understanding is a Jewish understanding that we're a covenantal people. We're a people of covenant, and covenant means relationship. It's all about relationships. So let's start with our people, not our programs. Let's think about how we can learn about our people, their stories, their passions, their talents, their needs. Let's change up how we spend our precious time and resource in our Jewish institutions and build deep and lasting connections with our people and between our people because it's all about relationships. 
So I did a book a few years ago, I think that's one of the talks I gave for you, on the spirituality of welcoming. And a lot of the synagogues and JCCs, everybody, now we've got greeters at the front door and we, you know, people are more friendly and all that is terrific, but we gotta go far beyond that. And that's why I wrote this new book. We gotta go far beyond welcoming to know our people. I mean, what do we do when people join a Jewish institution? We give them a demographic form to fill out. Fill out this form and then nobody looks at it. My favorite story of all time is my, the story of my daughter, Javi, uh, in her first serious relationship. She was on J-Date, do you know J-Date? Uh, do you have J-Date down here? Some people think it's the most successful, besides CSP, the most successful uh, Jewish innovation of the last 20 years. Because so many people are meeting each other on J-Date. So, our daughter, Javi, was at the University of Michigan, go blue. She graduated, she comes back to Los Angeles to go to USC and HUC. And a girlfriend of hers says, you gotta get on J-Day. She was 28 at the time. No, 20, she was 24. So um, she didn't want it to at first, and then she got on like a kid in a candy store. She's looking at these profiles, and she's picking out guys she wants to meet, and she's going on six J-Dates a night at Starbucks. <laughs> And she's, she was living in an apartment not far from us, and she'd come over to us after the six dates, bouncing off the walls from the caffeine <laughs> to report. She's reporting on what happened on the J dates. And you know, usually it's then, this, and then. One night she comes home, she says, I found him. He's perfect on paper. <laughs> this is what they say. So I said, what means perfect on paper? So she says, well, he's tall. He's handsome. He's 31, 32, I think. Uh, he's Jewish. His J-Date profile, he's got his arm around his bubby. He goes to shul, to synagogue. And he's a dentist. <laughs> Wonderful. And not only was she taken with him, he took one look at our daughter, Javi, and said, forget coffee. We're going for dinner. In the J-Date world, this is known as an instant upgrade. <laughs> so they go out to dinner and he pays for it and now they're starting dating and it's three months and it's six months and it's nine months and it's 12 months and it's a year and a half. He comes over to our house for Shabbos, we meet his parents, it's all going great and we're thinking, new? You know, what, what's happening? Mitten Drinnen, do you know any Yiddish? In the middle of all this, my university, American Jewish University, changes its dental plan. And I say it to this guy, the dentist, at Shabbat dinner one night at our house. He says, no worries, come to me. I'm all over that, I couldn't wait. I go to him, he's pretty good, he charges me the family rate. I come home to Susie, I say, honey, you gotta go. She looks at me with this, for crimp to put him, you know, for, like a sad face, and she says, no way. I don't want his hands in my, I can't do that. I said, honey, he could be our son-in-law, you must go. So I'll never forget what she said when she got in the car for the first appointment. Good thing he's not a gynecologist. <laughs> <laughs> and then he comes, she comes home with a better story. I said, well, how'd it go? She says, well, you know, the first time you go into a dentist or doctor's office, they give you a clipboard with a form to fill out. You've ever done that? Okay, so she says, well, 
So I sat in, his in the lobby and I, I get the clipboard and the form says, first name, first name, it says name, first line, name. So Susie says to me, I wrote in Susan Wolfson. Second line said, name I prefer to be called. She wrote in mom. <laughs> Is that great? He never noticed it because he never read the form. Just like synagogues and JCCs and our other institutions, he didn't read it. And people ask me, you know, so how did it, well, she, he wasn't the guy that we thought he was. Six weeks before the wedding, she called it off and saved her life. Because wow. she married Dave and they have two beautiful grand, uh, gave me two beautiful grandchildren. The first one's Ellie Brooklyn, who's three years old. Asked me why her name is Brooklyn. So my dad was from Brooklyn, may he rest in peace. Uh, my son-in-law's mother is from Brooklyn, is from Brooklyn. And uh, Brooklyn's a hot name right now. And it's a hot place. So they named her Ellie Brooklyn. So I call Larry Hoffman in New York. I say, Larry, I got a new granddaughter. Her name is Ellie Brooklyn. He says to me from New York, Ron, you're gonna have four more grandchildren. Manhattan. <laughs> Staten. If you have a girl, you can call her Malka for Queens. Huh? Not right. No, no, no. And, and then the fourth borough is, oh, I, yeah, you can call him, if you have a boy, call him the Bronx. Like the situation, right? But you know what? Uh, that's not going to do it. Because uh, uh, demographic forms is no way to hear a person's story. We have to start with not just welcoming, but relational moments. We've got to hear people's stories. And you know what? We can do it in one minute. We can start in one minute. I'll show you how. In this room, some of you know each other, right? Because you've been coming to these programs all these years. Some of you don't know each other. So here's what we're going to do in one minute. One minute. I'm just going to give you one minute because when you hear me clapping, that means you've got to come back. In one minute, I'd like you to go meet somebody in this room you do not know and answer one of these questions. What keeps you up at night? Or what gets you up in the morning? Or... Where are you at? What's your story? What's going on in your life? Introduce yourself, answer one of those questions, meet someone you don't know, one minute. Go, go, go. Come on.
Okay, if you can hear the sound of my voice, clap once. Hear the sound of my voice, clap once. Hear the sound of my voice, clap. 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 Come on, come on back. Hear the sound of my voice, clap. Hear the sound of my voice, clap. Come on, hear the sound of my voice, clap. Now clap three times. So I did this in New York last year. I did this in New York last year, actually last spring. And um, two women in this group of synagogue leaders, about 150 people, met each other. They'd never met each other before. They found someone they did not know. All of a sudden they start screaming in delight, hugging each other. They had gone to elementary school together, hadn't seen each other in 30 years. Now they're both leaders of their synagogues and they connected together because I gave them one minute, one minute to meet somebody they didn't know. So there are two groups in American religious life who know how to do this well. This idea of hearing a person's story and building a relationship with them. One is Christian, one is Jewish. I'm gonna just say a word about each. Uh, last Sunday, Scott was there. Uh, I took my Ziegler Rabbinical stu School students on the, my annual trip to Saddleback Church, right up the hill here. Uh, my friend Rick Warren, uh, been visiting his church now for 20 some years. And there's nobody in the, con in the world that knows how to build a sacred community of relationships like that guy. I have a lot of issues with Rick, but we've agreed, as he likes to put it, you don't have to see eye to eye to walk hand in hand. And he has taught me as much about developing sacred community as anybody in the world. Uh, and I wrote him an email. I said, I'm bringing my rabbinical students and a few friends um, to uh, Saddleback. Rabbi Marsha came. Uh, Cantor Marsha from uh, your shul. Rabbi Ellie came. Uh, and um, I said, you know, I'm coming down and I hear you're speaking. Would you mind meeting with my students for a few minutes? He said, the service starts at 9 o'clock. Come at 8.30. And then he, he gives everybody a big bear hug and he asks their name, and he waltzes us into his private study behind the pulpit there, spends a half hour teaching these rabbinic students what he knows about building sacred community. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, their secret of success is the warm welcome, hearing people's stories, and they have 25,000 members of Saddleback in 7,008 small groups that meet once a week in someone's home just to check in with each other, hear a message from the pastor every week. We're gonna do that in Orange County. You don't know about it yet, but it's gonna happen in a synagogue here. Um, and you know who's best in the Jewish community? Chabad. Now I have a lot of issues with Chabad, but I wrote, I have six case studies in the book of organizations doing relational work on the cutting edge and Chabad is number one because they know, I'm telling you, those guys know, and they've turned the affiliation model upside down because they're going to warmly welcome you and they're going to have you to their house for Shabbos dinner or lunch and they're going to introduce you to their family and they're going to teach you and then they're going to come after you for money and they do aggressively because there are 4,500 independent contractors in Chabad, 4,500 rabbis, who are out there building relationships and building community. And there's what to learn from them. 
there is seriously what to learn from them. They raise over a billion dollars a year, and guess who they get the money from? It ain't the Orthodox. It's from all of us. It's from Reform and Conservative and Reconstructionists and unaffiliated Jews who are grateful for the relationship. Now, our best of our rabbis, including the one right here, are great at this. And that's something we have to continue to encourage our leadership, our rabbis, our, our staff at JCCs, our staff at Federation, to spend a, maybe a little tad less time on developing these great programs and more time going out for coffee, meeting someone for lunch, having over for dinner, and building relationships with people. But the rabbis and the staff can't do it alone. They're gonna need the lay people. Because we need to build vertical relationships between the clergy and the staff of our institutions and are the people we already have and the people we wanna reach out to. But we also have to build horizontal relationships amongst the people themselves. And we have to keep our eye on the ball. So turn your page over. There's a page that says, um, Nine levels of relationship, and I just have a few more minutes, and then we'll have some questions, okay? Um, one section of the book uh, keeps the eye on the ball. What's the goal of Jewish affiliation? What are we really trying to do if we say to somebody, join our synagogue, or join a JCC, or, or get involved in federation? What are we really trying to do? Well, we're trying to build a relationship between the individual and Judaism, and the Jewish people, and the Jewish community. So I've devised this little nine levels of relationship that I think is a pretty comprehensive list of our goal of what we're trying to do when we build a relationship with somebody, to bring them into Jewish life. So I call these the banes of our existence. Bane is a Hebrew word that means between. Bane, between. It's all about the banes of our existence. So here are the nine banes of our existence. Number one, ben adam latzmo. Adam is a word for man, but it means us, me. Atzmo means literally himself or our, myself. So how do you build a relationship with somebody who's been influenced by American individualism to the point the first question they ask is, what's in it for me? Why should I spend time in a synagogue? Why should I get involved in Jewish life? What's it gonna do for me? We can't ignore that question. We have to answer that question. Uh, so if I belong to your congregation or a JCC, will my life be changed? Will my life be better? Will I hear something on Shabbat that's gonna lead me to redemptive work on Tuesday? Number two, between me and my family. So if I uh, come to a JCC a preschool, am I going to be inspired and empowered to be Jewish at home? Are you going to give me resources to make Thanksgiving the most exciting holiday in centuries? It is. It's a fabulous opportunity. I was just quoted in a JTA article because what's the, what was the mission, what's the, what was the re meaning of Thanksgiving, really? It was about people, it was about pilgrims who were escaping persecution 
and, and assimilation. Right? Same as Hanukkah. The true story of Hanukkah is not about a miracle of the lights that lasted eight days. The true story of Hanukkah is a bunch of zealot Jews stood up to those who wanted to be Hellenized and wanted to be assimilated and said, no, no, no. We're not going to let America take over our lives. We're going to keep our Jewish values. You get it? So it's a fabulous opportunity. And the family's all going to be together on Thanksgiving. So uh, look at freedomsfeast.us. Write it down, freedomspeace.us. Good friend of mine, Lee Meyerhoff Hendler, took an idea that I had with my friend Larry Neinstein. There are all kinds of resources and rituals and ceremonies for a Thanksgiving celebration that tells stories. And you can combine it with Hanukkah, and you can have a spectacular Thanksgiving experience with your family this year. Freedomsfeast.us. All right? It's not Jewish. It's about Thanksgiving and other holidays in America. And then you get from the rabbis that you know, uh, good stuff to do on Hanukkah, it'll be fantastic. Number three, being a dumb lechavero. Will I find a group of friends? Chavero means friends. Will I find a group of friends in my affiliation? Uh, because if you do, you're likely to stay. When I visit synagogues, I ask the people who are old timers at the synagogue, sometimes in the leadership, I say, what made you stay after your youngest kid bar bat mitzvah? And they said, my friends are here. I have a relationship with the rabbi, yes, but my community is here, my friends are here. Number four is ben adam liyahadut. Because uh, between me and the Judaism itself, there's no substitute for content. There's no substitute for Jewish learning and practice, okay? And it's got to be deep and meaningful and lead my life to a purposeful and meaningful life. So those four levels of relationship are about personal things. Now skip number nine and let's go to the next four, starting with number five. Between me and the community. And by community, I mean the sacred community, of a synagogue. And the sacred, the kind of the... That's sacred community and the kind of secular community of Federation, JCC, Hadassah, all of our organizations. Number six is Ben Adam La'am, between me and the people, Israel, the people, the Jewish people. I like to say, why is it someone who will never walk into a synagogue in Orange County will take a trip to Rome and the first thing they want to do is go to synagogue? <laughs> Or they want to eat in the Jewish deli in the ghetto. Or they walk in down the Via Della Rosa or whatever it is, the Via Step, the Spanish Steps. They're at the Spanish Steps. They see someone wearing a high. Oh, Lonsman. You know, a, a, a fellow traveler, a fellow Jew. That's a sense of palpable sense of Jewish peoplehood. So how is your institution helping me get that? Number seven is Ben Adam Le Yisrael, between me and the state of Israel. Because love it, or wrestle with it, but we need a relationship with this, our homeland, the state of Israel. Number eight is Ben Adam La'olam, between me and the world. You've heard the term tikkun olam? That's where this comes in. How do we repair the world? Not just the Jewish world, the entire world, because we're a world religion. And now go back to the middle. And here's the most important relationship of all, I think. Right in the middle, number nine. Between me and, literally, makom means place. 
but it's one of the hundred names of God. Between me and God. And you're going to say to me, Ron, you're really saying that if I belong to a Jewish organization, you're going to lead me to a relationship with God? And I say, don't let any, you know, don't, don't let any picture of a big old man with a long beard sitting on a throne in heaven get in the way. I don't have to care how you define God, but there's got to be a relationship with something beyond ourselves. And Judaism calls that God, and uh, we ought to be fostering a relationship, a personal relationship with God. So how are we going to get there? Well, uh, let me say two words about that, and then we'll stop. We, uh, the rest of the book deals with 12 principles of relational engagement, things we can do to change up our paradigm, beginning with personal encounters, opportunities to meet each other, small groups with our staff and clergy in different ways, but personal encounters. Number two is hearing. In the book, I say telling our stories, but it's not for you, it's about for the people we're trying to reach, it's about getting them the opportunity to tell their story to somebody. But for us, it's all about listening to their story. Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel. Uh, that's what we need to be doing. Um, second thing we have to worry about and change up is the way we engage people. And I love what some creative rabbis are doing now. They are really changing up. How, what happens to somebody when they join a synagogue? Including my friend Rabbi Ed Feinstein is gonna be with you soon. Uh, they've changed up the whole way. They induct new members into their congregation, beginning with a covenanting ceremony on the bima, on the pulpit, where at the end of an hour of telling each other their stories, including the rabbi and the president of the synagogue, they open up the ark, they take out the Torah scrolls, they hand them to each of the new members and they make a a Shechianu prayer, which makes it a spiritual moment to join a synagogue, not a demographic form. And there are hundreds of other examples. Um, it, you know, my dad's Yortzite was last week. With this, I'll wrap up. Last week, my dad's first Yortzite came. So you know what I got from my synagogue? I got this. I got this. I know you won't see it in the podcast. It's an envelope. And there's a form letter. Dear friend, this is to inform you that the Yortzite anniversary of your beloved blank begins on the evening of blank when the Yortzite memorial candle is traditionally kindled and throughout the day and then we take MasterCard and Visa. If I didn't know better that it was a tradition to give a donation at the Yortzite, I already paid you $3,000. What? How about, a, I, and I say in the book, I say, wouldn't it have been nicer when my mother died three years ago if I got a phone call from somebody? We're thinking about you. We're thinking about, we know you must be thinking about your mom. We're gonna read her name in the synagogue this week. Wouldn't that be nice? So Rabbi Dan Moskovitz just moved up to Vancouver. He's a wonderful reform rabbi, new in the community. He says, well, I read that in your book, Ron. He calls me two weeks ago. He said, and I decided I'm going to call everybody 20, 30 names a week. I'm going to call everybody. I'm going to ask them, tell me something about your loved one. People were shocked that he called. And it doesn't have to be the rabbi. Rabbis are very busy. But he figured it was worth his time. One woman said to him, first time in 40 years, somebody from the synagogue called my house. 
And then I said to him the key question, Rabbi Moskowitz, how long did it take you to do this? 90 minutes, an hour and a half. But for him to do it, it means you lay people have to give him permission, not the rabbi, not to go to endless committee meetings they don't need to be at. And the rabbis need to reorient their time. They've spent a lot of time building relationships with people. But that's just one example. So listen, there are dozens of other principles and best practices in the book. I hope you will read it with your congregations and your community organizations and your staffs. And, but it's not enough to read. We gotta do it. We gotta do it. So I've got, uh, I've got on my watch uh, seven minutes for questions, and then we're going to wrap up, so don't leave. Okay, Ari's got a question. Who's got a question or a comment? And then we'll, we'll wrap up in a nice way. Come on, who's got a, please. Any success stories or things you've heard about to engage uh, couples, the uh, faith? Interfaith couples? Well, there's a huge amount going on. Your next speaker is Carrie Olitsky. Well, after Sharon Browse. So you got to go hear Sharon. She's unbelievable. And with Rabbi Spitz, it's going to be a dynamite evening. Um, uh, Carrie Olitsky runs something called the Jewish Outreach Institute, which is all about reach, trying to reach out and engage interfaith couples. There's a lot of work going on with that. A lot of work, and he's the expert on it. But you know what? Again, I look at that. Once it's already happened, an interfaith marriage, let's do everything we can to make that family Jewish. Raise Jewish kids, Jewish grandkids. Okay, who's got another question? Anybody got a question? Please. Um, you talk about the reaching out and the personal call. Yeah. And it just can't come from the rabbi. It has to come from right. the congregation as well. There's probably no formula to determine how much or how it should be shared, or is there? Well, look, I, look we, are, we are not very good I mean, my, I, my job is to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. We are not very good at tracking people, and we're not very good at, at really mobilizing our people's talents. Mm -hmm. uh, Rick Warren said to me and our students last week, we have 7,000 groups. And I said to him, how do you do that? He says, well, we have a very simple thing. We ask for people to volunteer their homes, and they have to be able to host and they have to be able to put a DVD in their player, and they have to be able to give some cookies and tea and coffee, and that's all they need to be able to do. So people are very busy, they're not gonna volunteer for committees the way they used to. Because if you volunteer for a committee in a synagogue today, you'll be made the chairman overnight. <laughs> and it will be a life sentence, you'll never get off. So, so we're not asking the right questions. I, I need to know your talent. I need to know Scott's talent. I need to know what he's really, this guy is a marketing genius. This guy is on fire. This guy's talent needs to be brought, and he's doing it. He's bringing it to his synagogue, and you know that. So God bless him, and God bless his synagogue for recognizing his talent and bringing it to work. So we need to do that, and we need to track relationships better. Our our database systems in most Jewish institutions are basically accounting systems. And that's not enough. You know, it's not enough. We're working on it in Synagogue 3000 next door. Please, we have two more questions. Yeah, mine is more a statement. I hope it's helpful. Uh -huh. Our own experience as a young married couple 
was that we had no experience other than very Jewish homes, kosher mm-hmm. homes, Zionist homes, right. with something like a suburban affiliation in a synagogue. Mm-hmm. But when the word got out that your children were welcome to attend yep. preschool and right. the first couple of years free of charge. Well, there you go. And that opened up doors to all my Jewish suburban right. neighbors who did not have the earlier experience. Right. And that was better than any institution. So here's my point about that. If you Google uh, the Chabad guys, they're a free Hebrew school, free. It's not free. But, but they use it as a look. And you know what? A lot of synagogues are saying, okay, first year you can join, no dues or $180 dues. But that's not enough, people. What are you doing with the people that once they sign up for $180? What are you doing in the first year or two years with that family, with those people? Are you hearing their stories? Are you getting them connected to other families? Do they have an opportunity to meet the rabbi? If they do, you have a better chance of continuing their engagement. So, Shevet Achim Gam Yachad. I gotta stop. I'm sorry because you know he stood up. So, uh, so here, listen. And I'll stick around for 15 minutes. I can. Uh, listen to this. How really great and pleasant, pleasing is it? Shevet Achim Gam Yachad for us to be together. So what's with the gum? Why also? Well, the Zohar teaches us this. I'll give you the precinct. When two people come together, the Shekhinah is present. God is present. Because each of us is made in the image of God. And if you approach another human being as made in the image of God, it changes everything. And not only that, the Zohar continues to teach. When you're in relationship, God is pleased. God is joyous. And our community is better for it. So let's end my part. I know you got to talk to each other, but would you do something crazy with me? I'm a Nebraska boy, but I love to do this. Stand up and put your arms around each other. Let's sway with the music and sing together. Ready? Here we go. Come on, get up, get up, get up. Put your arms around each other. I love seeing Now look at each other. One more time. Now kiss and hug a image of God next to you.